0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and today I am joined by Penny Phillips. Penny is the co-founder uh, and president of Journey Str- Journey Strategic Wealth. I think I got that right. If I mess that up, Penny, I'm sure, is going to correct me. Penny, though, has had a, a long career in kind of the advising and coaching realm of wealth management, both inside large institutional uh, wealth management companies, and then more on the individual RIA space. I'm really excited to talk to you today, Penny. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me. And you got the name right, Journey Strategic Uh, Wealth. Perfect. All right,
0: Journey Strategic Wealth. You know, sometimes, (laughs) I don't know, sometimes I see names on RIAs and I'm like, hmm, I don't know if that's the right name. (laughs) You know,
1: I felt like that this morning looking at an advisor's website. So I know exactly (laughs) what you mean. Yes. (laughs) Uh,
0: There's one in town that I'll I'll drive past and they've got like the name is plastered on the side of this, this commercial building. It's Fortress Wealth. (laughs) And I think I don't know if that was the right name. Fortress. I don't know if you want people to think that they're going to give you their money and now it's locked inside of a fortress. I'm sure <laughs> that's not what they meant.
1: <laughs> or it's hard to get into somehow. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Coming up with a name is always difficult. We, um, we're a New Jersey based firm and I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why we chose Journey, but, um, our, we have an office in San Francisco as well. And I just took our entire firm. To see Journey, the band in concert. That was our team retreat. So Journey was at Journey wearing Journey t shirts. It was amazing.
0: Nice. Yeah. Well, what was, uh, what was the premise when you, when you started Journey? What was the premise you were kind of trying to answer?
1: So, and you know my background a bit, Brent. I've spent my career coaching financial advisors and consulting institutions. And so, and, and I've, four business partners in this venture. Um, One of them is is also an industry consultant who also spent years consulting financial advisors. And then two of our other partners are uh, financial advisors. And Journey is really the culmination of all of our experiences in this business. And we launched in January of 2021. We are right now, I mean, the markets haven't been uh, friendly to us the last couple of months. But uh, <laughs> we're still well, you and everybody else. So. Correct. We're not alone and that feels good. But we're a three billion dollar firm. We have two offices right now, one on the West Coast, one on the east coast, and and expanding. The the thesis originally was that we had all seen from different aspects of the industry this two things. Number one a shift to independence. So financial advisors, and this has been happening for the last, you know, decade or more, leaving the large corporate firms that force them to sell proprietary product and treat them like employees. We've seen this shift to independence. So advisors want to own their own business, they want to run their own business. And and the industry's been telling them for a long time, like you need to do this. While that was happening, though, what I noticed as a consultant was that advisors would leave. They'd feel better about being independent and owning their P&L and and really controlling their own destiny, but they quickly realized that running a business and running operations and being the person responsible not just for revenue generation, but now business management and compliance and risk management – really wasn't what they loved. And so the last couple of years, there's been this influx of activity and M&A activity specifically in the independent space with advisors trying to find greater operational efficiency by merging with other firms or joining firms. And so what we wanted to build was a structure where advisors had independence. So they own their book of business. they They control their destiny from the standpoint of, when and how they monetize and sell. But in terms of handling operations, managing P&Ls, hiring, technology, that is all handled by us. So it's really the best of both worlds, the best of the warehouse and the best of the independent space combined together. So that is Journey Strategic Wealth. And we chose the name Journey not just because we want to take into account the consumer's journey and how we're evolving to support that, but also the advisor's journey and how we're evolving to support that as well. So, long answer, yeah. but that's the truth.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting because I've been telling all of my friends who are in that industry for a long time that precisely what you just described was the trend that I foresaw, that more and more advisors who were solos were going to get out of that game and consolidate into companies, RIA, you know, firms because the compliance and all the back office and all the stuff you have to do just to run a competent business is a pain in the neck, and they're going to be willing to pay for it. Plus, there's no other way to retire other than to just pull exactly. the ripcord. Exactly,
1: exactly, and and that's what we're coming up on now, right? We're an aging industry demographically, mm-hmm. and we're an industry that in the last you know three decades has shifted from a solopreneur producer model to an advisory model. So that change alone has really has made advisors realize that, first of all, you can't do it on your own. You have to be part of a team. You can't be the only person responsible for producing and advising. So that shift from sales, right, Mm -hmm. I sell a product, I get a commission, I don't need to speak to the client again, to advising where there's a fiduciary responsibility to serve that client on an ongoing basis. That alone pushed advisors to start thinking about, gosh, I want to be independent. I want to build a business. I want to I want to have an enduring practice. Um, But but running that and doing it profitably is really, really difficult. And you need somebody, in my opinion, solely dedicated to the running of the infrastructure.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I've, I've heard you say about the structure that you built that when advisors come in, first of all, they're all they basically change the name of their firm, right? Everybody is the same firm. Correct. It's not a bunch of little individual firms with individual names with the weird ones that we were just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so you're calling those out. That's that's good uh, strategic planning. But um, but also that advisors come in and they own their book. Can you yeah. explain like that dynamic and why that's different than maybe the the typical industry standard? Because maybe people don't fully appreciate it.
1: I, and I think you're right. People don't fully appreciate the options that are out there and don't fully appreciate what happens when you join an RIA um similar to ours but but different in the sense of you you join their ADV so I'll explain the difference and I'll I'll say the reason there there's intentionality around everything we've built the best way to maximize enterprise value and there's multiple drivers of uh, of enterprise value, but being under one name and one ADV doesn't just benefit us as journey. It, it benefits every advisor joining us, right? It's it, the valuation on a business where everyone's under one umbrella, leveraging the same tools and and marketing and branding the same way that business theoretically has more value than one where everybody's a separate entity, different names, et cetera. So that's the reason why we encourage advisors to adopt the, the journey brand. Um, As far as the second point of what you asked, so one thing we would see is advisors would leave a wirehouse or they'd leave an insurance broker-dealer and want to go independent because that's the point of the business life cycle they're at, and firms wouldn't let them leave. And we've experienced it as consultants to advisors. We've experienced it as advisors. We've experienced it from every angle. How unfair is that to the end client? If an advisor wants to leave an organization and the firm is suddenly suing the advisor and saying, no, you can't take these clients, we just felt that the future of the industry is really in being transparent about and genuine about what independence means. So there are no restrictive covenants in our contracts. An advisor joins us. They own the book of business that they come to us with. They own their clients. If they want to leave us, uh, they can at any time without restrictions. That is intentional. We don't believe that we should handcuff advisors to any firm. It's our responsibility as a home office to keep advisors happy and wanting to stay with us. But if an advisor chooses to leave, that is their decision. Now, the only caveat to that is – if an advisor chooses to sell a portion or all of their business to us at any point, this is another differentiator for us. We will never force a transaction. What often happens in our industry when advisors are transitioning is they go to a firm that says, great, you can join us, you're independent, but we need to buy 40% of your firm right now, or we need to buy 100% of your firm right now. As a consultant and coach, I believe that decision to monetize should happen over time and should be the result of many discussions that the advisor and his or her team have with a coach and with key stakeholders. So we can buy up to 100% of an advisor's business at any time, but we don't believe that decision should be forced. And that would be the only time in which we own the client relationships, right? If we've actually bought a portion of the book. So that's a major differentiator right. and not many firms are operating that way right now.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it sounds like it's um, it's a case-by-case situation for you. and But you're right that the industry standard, I mean, in many industries, not just financial advisory, but the industry standard is, you know, you, the advisor, go somewhere, either they buy your book or not, but you might be subject to restrictive covenants in your agreements with them, where when you leave for some period of time, you're not allowed to compete against them, or you may not be able to solicit the clients. You probably aren't allowed to solicit the employees and all of that is pretty normal. So leaving becomes very difficult. You might not even be able to leave effectively depending on how much time there is and how much sort of strife there's going to be between you and the company that you're leaving. It's interesting because, um, lawyers, because we write the rules, we, we like to write them the way that's favorable for us. So in the legal, We love you and we
1: hate you Brent sometimes it depends, we do depends it. on the day.
0: <laughs> we know, we know us. I know my people. <laughs> they, uh, uh, the the rule in the legal industry, typically in most states, I, I think it's this way in, in almost every state. Uh, you can't have restrictive covenants among lawyers in a law firm because that would be in a, in effect governing the practice of law. And usually, only this the highest court of that jurisdiction is permitted to govern the practice of law. So it's like you'd be taking the decision out of the hands of the highest mm-hmm. court of the state, and therefore you can't do that. So that's I mean, lawyers bounce around. before between firms constantly, probably to the chagrin of everybody around them, and including their clients. But that's the reason, they can. They have the flexibility to do it. But to your point then, if you're thinking about building a firm under that environment, it means you, the person building the firm, have to try to make the firm work for the advisor. Correct.
1: Exactly, and it's this. It's a really great point, and any advisors listening will will know this firsthand. There are what we call broker protocol firms and non broker protocol firms in our industry, um, and and there's been a lot of news on this recently. M- many of the wirehouses, so you know Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, etc., for a period of time it, had a mutual understanding. They are considered broker protocol firms one recently dropped out meaning there was an agreement that an advisor could transition from one firm to the next and take five critical pieces of client information with them and there was sort of this mutual understanding around how a transition would actually happen now most insurance broker dealers and that's where i spent much of my consulting career so northwestern mutual you know guardian life mass mutual new york life mo those firms do not adhere to any sort of protocol and and now I believe two of the big wires don't either, which means if an advisor wants to leave and their local leadership says no we we are not going to be friendly to you leaving. You have to go through a, a garden leave period and then you have to prove that you can publicly source, you can't solicit clients. If you can prove that you can publicly source client information from the internet, then you're allowed to reach out to clients. So my point in sharing this is, for me, if we want to be objective, if we want to keep the clients at the center of the relationship, the advisory relationship, how is that strategy, keeping clients at the center of a relationship? In other words, I just vehemently disagree with the way firms have handled advisors transitioning personally.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You and I are of of a similar mind. I think it means that your business is built on serving different interests. Exactly. That sort of underlying core competency of the business. That's right. And that's always a little distressing. I have a uh, I have a question for you. this is a, this is different from what we were just talking about. So I apologize if you want to talk more about that, we can no, but,
1: no, it's um, on, I got on a soapbox for a second there. Sorry you kind
0: <laughs> of you kind of rose to prominence, I would say in some in some respects, doing weekly videos.
1: That's right.
0: Uh, that anybody can look up if they just Google. Penny Phillips, you'll find them. Penny Phillips YouTube, you'll find them. Um, so how did that start? How did you, what was it that, that triggered in your mind the thought, you know, what, not only should I be talking to people about this stuff, I should record myself?
1: <laughs> it, it's it's such a good question. And I hope this gives some ideas to anyone who's thinking about recording videos or just client acquisition in a post-pandemic world. I started recording videos probably five years ago. The reason was I had left a consulting firm that I was working for at the time and decided to launch my own firm. And I said to myself, gosh, I'm a millennial female consultant who hasn't been in the business that long and needs to build a name for myself. And how am I going to do this? So I knew that just from a demographic standpoint, I looked and sounded different than most consultants on the circuit. And at the time, there other than speaking at conferences, there there was the, – the only option for me was to be more present on social media. And so what I did was I said, what would advisors – and that was my clientele, obviously, launching the consulting business for financial advisors. I said, what would financial advisors find interesting? If I was to provide them some value before they even hired me, what would they find interesting? And so I started – what I called Wednesday Wisdom, and it was answering a question that an advisor, and I speak to advisors all day, every day, I still do, 13 years later, what is it that advisors ask real time from consultants? So I would think about the questions that I would was asked in any given week, and it was things like, how much should I pay the new associate advisor I just hired, or I'm thinking about succession planning, but I don't have a junior advisor on my team. What should I do? And I'd spend 10 minutes every week answering a question. I'd record it. No scripts, no fancy editing. To this day, I still record on my computer without any editing. And I started emailing those video clips to email addresses that I had in my Gmail at the time. It was Literally exported email addresses, filtered out all the advisors, and I started uh, essentially a newsletter. And the first one was, I'm Penny Phillips. Some of you know me, some of you don't. I'm starting this newsletter. It is in conjunction with me launching my consulting business. But if this doesn't add 10 minutes of value to you every week, feel free to unsubscribe. And it really grew, right? It grew to you know thousands of people, and. I only recently transitioned to YouTube. I still do the weekly newsletter. And I will tell you that having relevant content, being candid and genuine, meaning if I mess up, I don't stop the video. I am in a conversation with a fictitious advisor for 10 minutes a week. That really resonated with advisors. And advisors who ask me about video, I tell them to take the same approach with clients and consumers. Answer a client question for 10 minutes or two minutes and start emailing it out or posting it. And if if you're genuine and can connect with an audience, you will grow that platform, whichever one you're using.
0: It sort of gets to the, the sort of Seth Godin thing of like the smallest viable market, right? Because you, right. you said it grew to thousands, not millions. -mm. Thousands and that—that's all it really takes is thousands. It might not even take thousands. It might, you know, hundreds might be plenty, or eight hundred might be plenty, depending on the the circumstances.
1: Exactly, and thousands to people who are, you know, creating content for the masses may not sound like a lot, but remember, my audience—I was very clear. And maybe this is another key insight for people listening. I was incredibly clear on my audience. My audience was advisors who had a propensity to grow their business, wanted to be both the CEO and the advisor, had challenges with growing human capital and and developing human capital, and were either sitting in an insurance BD or an independent firm or were already independent. That was my audience. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about understanding the unique challenges of that audience and being able to provide value. That's the reason why it picked up traction and, and obviously not only helped me build the consulting business, but really... Help me launch the RIA now as well.
0: Why do you think uh, advisors are terrible at social media as a group? And then I'll pick on lawyers. After you do that, I'll I'll come yes, back to lawyers. Yeah,
1: maybe we'll start with like no. Um. Right, we could. <laughs> you know, some There's are really to good. Say. I listen. Some advisors are good at social media, right? But I can I can name them on my two hands. The ones that I and I know thousands of advisors. I think it's multiple things. Number one, it's an age thing, demographics. Uh, and I'm I'm actually writing an article about this. The younger generation has only, meaning millennials and and younger, millennials and Gen Z. We have only ever, I mean, I've, I've caught both sides of it, but have only ever grown up in a world where this is how we engage. This is how we build confidence. This is how we participate in society. This is how we communicate. FaceTime, videos, social media, sharing stuff about ourselves. We really have been conditioned to be vulnerable on a daily basis, whether we are honest about our vulnerability or not is another story. But the older generation advisor never lived in a world like that. So one part of it is just comfort level with being on the technology. But the second part is I find that advisors, especially the ones that have been around for a long time, they have built their value proposition on this notion that they are the expert, right? They are the all-knower of things to both their team and to their clients. To be good at social media and engage, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to share things about you. I mean, that's how I connect with my audience. I share things about myself. I get things wrong sometimes. I'm honest and i think that's hard for advisors it's especially hard for male advisors and it's it's not i mean let's just be real it is some some of it is a gender thing as well the emo the the eq aspect of connecting with an audience is is i find challenging for some of the older male advisors who i've worked with um and and the other thing i think is You know, change is really uncomfortable for people. And what I think people don't realize, and that's the benefit of having a coaching background, is you don't have to get something perfect to do it right. And I think we are paralyzed by all of the options available to us, right? So advisors will go through a coaching course on how to record a video, and it's like, you have to buy this software, and you got to have this computer, and this light, and you got to say this. And it's like, just Open your iPhone, record yourself, right, exactly. and post it. That is all you need. And so it's a, it's a multitude of things. What about for lawyers? What do you think?
0: Similar things, similar things. But so I think at the root of it is um, normal kind of lower brain, just fear of crowds and public speaking in general, Uh, because to you to like what you're saying to to sort of use social media means you have to be vulnerable because you have you have to post things. And once it's out there, it's like anybody could think anything about it. They could think you're a complete schmuck. (laughs) But you have to decide that That doesn't matter. Frankly, if you're a lawyer, there are plenty of people out there that think you're a complete schmuck. (laughs) It's just the reality. Like people, you're going to have people that don't like you. It's the nature of the business. We're in sometimes very contentious situations and you're on one side and another person's on the other side and they hate you because you're on the wrong side to them. So. That for lawyers should go straight out the window. But the other but what it tends to lead to is a bunch of invented roadblocks. Okay, so one of the big ones is, well, aren't there all sorts of ethical rules and it's difficult for lawyers to like it wouldn't be legal advice. And like, well, if you say it's legal advice and people could reasonably believe that it is, then sure. But to provide people with accurate information is not legal advice and it's not unethical. In fact, I believe it's kind of your duty to society, if you're in my industry, is to educate the public on the law. It shouldn't be some sort of like black box that nobody can ever understand. Like you should be sharing this information so people do understand it and they can protect themselves. Isn't that part of our ethical obligations? And so I think like people try to create roadblocks that are really not roadblocks so that they can convince themselves that's why I don't do it.
1: So true. I wish I could disagree with you so we can make this more fun, I know. but I agree completely. And in coaching, we call that belief systems. And mm-hmm. advisors have belief systems that they've been hanging on to for decades that no longer serve them well. And one of those is I'm not good at social media or compliance is going to prevent me from posting this. And to your point, what I say to advisors is you don't have to talk about a specific mutual fund or insurance insurance. structured policy. Talk about the things that clients care about. And if you're struggling for content, I always tell advisors, imagine your best client, your very best client. What are the conversations regarding money that that client is having with their spouse, their neighbor, their employer, their colleagues, their friends on a daily basis? if you can talk about those issues then first of all you're not being not compliant and you're getting to the heart of what people actually care about and that's things like gosh what the heck's going on with the stock market right now or you know my parents are getting sick and i'm I, i'm worried about my this is a typical gen x issue right i have parents to care for and kids going to school how how do i manage all of that if you can talk eloquently for two minutes about any of those topics, you just added value to somebody's life. It's that simple.
0: Yeah. Or it's like, well, won't I run out of things to say like, well, I'm pretty sure to this point in your life, you haven't. So <laughs> you're going to be fine. Like there's enough to say you can keep saying it. And if you have to repeat yourself, you do that all the time anyway. So just repeat yourself. It's fine. The other thing that The other thing that I hear from from lawyers to pick on my people here is that they're like, well, I I develop business where I find clients like face to face. You know, I go to lunches and coffees and things like that. And I tell them all. Great. Me, too. Keep doing it. Yeah. Don't stop. You can do both. There's plenty of room in the world for both.
1: Again, I would say that's another and that's this is a typical advisor one. I would say I hear this belief system more for more when an advisor is complaining to me (laughs) gently. About the fact that the, that younger advisors on their team or younger partners in the business aren't as good at networking. And I'm, mm. I'm actually writing a blog about this right now, right? Like I built my business by being out there, you know, belly to belly with people and, you know, making th- things happen and going up to people at a restaurant, whatever. And so there's this complaint of, well, now, because of the pandemic and this younger generation. And what I say to advisors is, number one, to your point, you you can still do all the things. You could still be out there doing your thing, networking, golfing. But I want advisors to reframe what business development means in today's world. So there are some advisory firms right now that are only hiring new advisors who have a social media following. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. How, first of all, how different is that from – yeah. What we've seen in the past, but, but how genius is that? People who have the propensity to influence others, to create content, to brand themselves on social and digital channels. First of all, that is the way firms, not just in our industry, attract new customers, right? Creating content, catching mm-hmm. people's attention. So there needs to be a combination of that. And I would love to see advisors continue to double down on the Tactics that have always worked for them, but leverage other team members to embrace some of these other, um, biz, we'll call them business development tactics that are more conducive to the way consumers engage with service providers anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yes, to the things that work, sprinkle in new things that work today that are proven to work today. Yeah.
0: Well, and also, you, you know, you're kind of talking about. Um, different generations and kind of younger, younger generations of wealth. And every advisor i ever hear who's under the age of 75, it's like, yeah, we want like generational clients and things. It's like these younger clients. And frankly, most of the clients, if they're in a business or industry, they're building their businesses off of social media. Correct. So shouldn't you be competent in social media so they can see you understand them and that you're kind of on the cutting edge of how business is done today?
1: It's, such a great point, and the feedback I get when I say that to advisors is my clients are baby boomers and retirees. They don't care about social media, <laughs> and my fa- the favorite, favorite thing I say is go into a cardiologist's office, okay? Everybody, 70 and above, has a cell phone and is on Facebook mm-hmm. arguing with people in Facebook groups, so mm-hmm. this notion that pe- nobody's on social – like that is – we know that that's not true. It's so false, yeah. It's so false, but it, it's also – I think advisors, and I've heard this a lot, some say it directly and some are not conscious about it. I think they feel weird suddenly being on social media. I think they feel like their clients are going to think they're weird if they're suddenly posting on Twitter. And and so what I always tell advisors is use the pandemic as an opportunity to rebrand yourself to clients. Send a letter to your clients and say, listen, we are going to try some new things this year. We realize how important social and digital media is, especially in a time like the last two years. We're going to be posting videos. Give us your feedback. Make clients part of that rebranding experience, and then it doesn't feel mm-hmm. weird because you're mm-hmm. explaining why you're doing these things. So that that would be my other my other tip for people.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the other thing I get is like, well, what if I say something and it offends people? It's going to happen. Like, well, then don't say offensive stuff, first of all. <laughs> That's... Maybe the, maybe step number one, like when you go out for a dinner party with mixed company, maybe you're just not going to blurt out the most offensive thing you can come up with. Don't do that on social media. Problem solved.
1: Exactly. And I, I try to say, I mean, I'm quote unquote, controversial about things that really are not that big of a deal. Right. Like, like I don't think things. Yeah, it's very yeah, yeah. industry specific. I don't think advisors should ask for referrals. Like that's a big topic I talk a lot about in, in the traditional sense. And but other than that, I'm not bringing up politics, religion, ch- people's children, education. I'm sticking to my expertise, which is advisory businesses. That's it.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> you don't have to get into every single you don't. Turns out you don't have to have an, a public opinion about every <laughs> single topic in order to be on social media. Exactly. All yeah. right. Well, um, I think we'll leave it there. Penny, I I want to be respectful of your time. And I know you're busy and I'm busy and we we actually have like work to do. So that's correct. <laughs> um, even though I could chat with you about these things all day long.
1: If totally. people
0: are trying to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I'm all over social media, you know that. Um, if find me on LinkedIn, Penny Phillips. My company's name is Journey Strategic Wealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Thrivos. That's the name of my consulting company, Thrivos LLC. But if you Google Penny Phillips, New York City, you'll find me in a bunch of places.
0: Yes. The Internet knows where you are. That's so right. It will guide everybody. All okay. right, Penny. Well, I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you again.
1: Likewise. Thank you.
0: Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at WealthAndLaw.com and follow me on social media at and law. I'll see you there.